your head out of the clouds Get your feet back on the ground Get stuck into pop culture We'd stick around Hello there and welcome to Stick Around The podcast that doesn't care about looks, only doing the right thing Brought to you by Sun Decor the following is a personal plea from Sundico CEO Gareth Sundico. Yeah, it has been a hard time for bargain bin manufacturers lately. When 85% of your revenue comes from bright, gregarious bin displays in physical shops like Spots Direct, things can take a toll. To remind Spots fans that we still exist and that our products can be purchased in virtual bin displays online, we are pledging one fluorescent yellow or orange bib to the NHS every time you buy a product. Hashtag bins for the NHS. <laughs> Very generous of Sundico, I think. Um, does that count as um, PPE, do we think? Uh, 10%. I mean, it's, in, it, in Matt Hancock's figures, it will do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it reduces the chances in some way, right? Yeah, I mean, although bibs tend to have kind of like breathable holes in the middle, so, and, you know, they don't cover mm. a huge amount of the body, but, you know, they've, they've got to protect in a small way. Um, You'd have thought it'd be better having one on than not, which, I mean, seems like a great reason to just wear anything, doesn't it? Yeah, and, you know, maybe you could put, you know, patients who are terminally ill with COVID-19 in fluorescent orange bibs and people likely to recover in fluorescent yellow bibs. You know, separate them out. I like it, yeah. Mm. Maybe give them badges as well. Yeah. On top of that to sort of differentiate between different groups. Really make it stick out. <laughs> who's fr- who's from where, who's from what country, that, that kind of stuff. Um, that way they can decide who to, you know, who's more important to give the treatment to quickly. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway. Where is, uh, is Gareth, is he South African? Um, Gareth's lived in a lot of places, um, so he's picked up various parts of his accent. Um, I think it's a mystery as to whether Gareth's actually from Milton Keynes, France, South Africa, or Plymouth. Nobody knows. Or, or Brasilia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Brazilian Milton Keynes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I only asked because for a horrible moment that sounded racist at the start. <laughs> Uh, is is Sondico still exist? Because I, I didn't realise it did. Uh, this is this is why they've put in this campaign out right. there, Clive. Because okay. you don't really notice them unless you're in Sports Direct, you know, desperately trying to get through a maze of uh, displays to get what you actually want. And then you bump into a Sondico bin of fluorescent bibs or socks, and you think, yeah, that's not bad for two quid. I'll have one of them. <laughs> In other words, I mean, that, I'm sure that was Sandico's exact tactic, wasn't it? Yeah, um, and that's why that's why they're struggling. Chaos is a ladder to them. <laughs> Whereas, didn't they used to do? They used to do football kits, right, in the Premiership. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> every sports brand on earth has, at some point, had a Premier League kit. I think. <laughs> well, they definitely had one. I can't remember who it was, and it was it would have been around '97, '98. <laughs> yeah. Derby or someone. I'm going to have to research it. Um, so, are we? Um, how, how are we all doing? Have we um, all travelled the country to drop our kids off yet? Non-existent kids. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, 
I dropped them off at a fast food restaurant yesterday. Uh, then I went to the beach looking for them. Um, <laughs> what, you, you dropped them off at a fast food restaurant and went to the beach to look for them? Yeah, um, makes total Sounds, sense. Makes total sense. I like it, yeah. <laughs> Especially as you're looking for non-existent children. I like it. Yeah. As, an, um, um, as a Durham alumni, I've enjoyed some of the niche Durham University jokes that have been doing the rounds. Um, Can you give us the most niche one that no one will get? Well, I think people will get it, but it, it it's more apparent immediately to Durham alumni. But uh, my favourite was... Um, Apparently Cummings was going to go to his uh, fam- family in Oxford and Cambridge as a first choice, but they rejected him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <a> good one. <laughs> Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, the video which I referred to in the tagline just was just brilliantly shit, I thought. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just seems like a penis. I mean... I've, I, literally this is the first I've seen of him <laughs> oh is it well the guy's I mean for me the guy is a sad indictment of this country because it just shows how you can get to the very top while being I mean it sounds like a childish thing to say but a completely nasty person which is what he is well he's mm. the thing is he's the he's the wet dream of people who sit on uh, 4chan all day kind of <laughs> spaffing in their pants over some big brained kind of uber geek except he's got no empathy or class about him and he's just you know he's got a contempt for pretty much everybody but himself yeah that's certainly how it came across in that uh 20 second clip <laughs> yeah managed to get a lot into 20 seconds yeah seemed to sum up uh sum up his personality pretty well um but anyway enough about that because we're not the BBC News. Um, <laughs> we're going to move on to more important things like books and films and TV shows. And we're going to go to... Let's go to Alex Wayne to start us off with whatever you've got. Right, okay. Well, um, I was actually struggling a little bit this week. Um, because we're doing one on a weekly basis, I'm watching a lot of stuff. But a lot of it's, it is continuous stuff that I've already mentioned. So... Um, I reviewed what I'd seen of uh, the Americans last week, and um, I'm now on to season five, and the quality hasn't let up. You'll be happy to hear. But I wanted to do something new. Um, fortunately, I picked up on a film that was new to me. It came out in 2018. Um, it is a film called Thunder Road, uh, which, before you ask, is based around the Bruce Springsteen track, or to a certain extent. It's an adaptation of a short film made by the same people, um, that was went through Kickstarter and then became a, what's described on Wikipedia as a micro-budget film. Um, it's written, directed, and starring uh, someone called uh, Jim Cummings, uh, and it stars an otherwise fairly unknown cast, uh, with perhaps the exception of Macon Blair, who you might know from films like Blue Ruin. Um, the, the plot revolves around a police officer essentially having a very, very bad time in his life, um, the film opens up at the funeral of his mother. Uh, his mother's favourite song was Thunder Road. And he, in a, what's probably an error of judgement, he decides to um, make a dance routine to the song Thunder Road in a kind of squirm-inducing scene that is part comedy, part tragedy, which pretty much sums up the, uh, the theme of the film, really. Um, the, so much of it is, should I be laughing now? Should I be... Squ- wincing now should i be crying now um i think it 
I mean, it's a common cliche. There's a thin line between tragedy and comedy, and this film sums it up. Um, I was extremely impressed, actually. Um, I we, I watched this purely on the basis of the trailer. I was scanning through Netflix, and I stopped on it, not for any particular reason, just because I got bored searching. And the trailer just looked pretty good. Uh, I thought it was going to be a straight comedy. Far from it. Um, the film kind of plays with... Um, like I said, like your expectations of a of a scene being funny. In fact, the scene there's a scene at the start of the film that is pretty much mirrored at the end of the film that is cringing, juicingly funny at the start, but beautiful at the end, um, which absolutely captures. I'm assuming what they were going for. Uh, I mean, this film was made for less than two hundred thousand dollars, and it's been nominated and won a whole heap of awards. Yet it's barely known. But I thought it was beautiful. There is... I've never seen anything else by Jim Cummings. And he, he seems to be uh, something of a, you know, unknown figure. Has anyone heard of this film at all? No, when you, uh, um, when you first started talking about it from the title, I assumed it was that Springsteen film set in Luton. Um, yeah. No. But, uh, yeah, so it turns out there's a raft of these films by the sound Yeah, of I was just going to say, yes, I've seen the one set in Luton, uh, but I've not seen this one. I think, did they come out around about the same time? I seem to remember I this. Think, I think they thing. did, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. just just to, I, I don't know much about the one from Luton. This one isn't really that much about Bruce Springsteen. Um, yeah. It's 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 only based, the only basis of that is that um, his mum's favourite song was Thunder Road, which, incidentally, Thunder Road is never played in the film. Uh, nor is any Bruce Springsteen. Um, it was played in the original short film, um, but they made the creative decision not to actually include it. Uh, in fact, the opening scene where he's trying to do his dance routine to Thunder Road, you can't get the CD player to work, so he decides to do it to silence instead. Hence the uh, hence the ma- uber cringe. The music, the music in this actually, just while we've mentioned it, is extremely good and f- features a orchestral cover of "Skinny Love" by Bon Iver, um, which was extremely good. I just can't believe actually that this one has kind of slipped the net a little bit. Um, I doubt it got much of a cinematic release in the UK, uh, and it doesn't look like it got much of one in the US because it apparently only made about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, so it probably didn't make any money. Full stop. But um, this is a bit of a hidden gem, a bit of a micro-budget indie that um, is only 90 minutes as well, so it's per- perfect length if you're just in and not knowing what to watch, and I, w- I would really recommend it. But it would what one thing that would be interesting, actually, is whether there are scenes in the film that people have totally different reactions to, S- scenes where one person might find them to be beautiful and other scenes where people find them to be pure comedy. Um, I've certainly been in a few cinemas where there have been scenes that where people are laughing where they're not supposed to be uh you might be able to help me out there michael do you there was one in particular does that ring a bell with you yeah there's been a few of those hasn't there um oh, i can't remember off the top of my head there was certainly yeah. a f- there was a scene in the gift where that happened i remember yeah um can't remember any specifics it tends yeah. to be individual scenes where it happens doesn't it rather than yeah films I would, I would imagine had this one... Well, I'm sure it must have been released somewhere in the UK, but um, I'm, I imagine this would have had a few of those reactions, and more understandably, actually. Um, like I said, that is that does seem to be what the film's going for. Um, you know, this character, he's his mum's just died. 
Um, his wife just left him and he's trying to get joint custody of his kid. And everything around him just seems to be going badly and he's not reacting well to it. But I, I thought it was a quietly beautiful film. Very funny at times as well. Not much else to say on it, but I would highly recommend it, especially at the minute. Great. Sounds um, sounds great. I've not heard anything about it other than... I've seen... Um, I think it's called Blinded by the Light, the one in Luton, off the top of my head. Yeah, I was going to say, what's yeah. it called? Yeah. I think I think that's right. I saw that um, a couple of weeks ago. Decent. Not amazing. Um, good, good, A good sort of heartwarming watch, um, but... Some of the acting was a little bit cheesy. It's just a bit cheesy in general. But if you <laughs> if you can get past that, it's a it's a fun watch, which is, which is very much about Bruce Springsteen. It's about how one kid um, is is very inspired by Bruce Springsteen. The premise of it, like being set in Luton, just seemed overly bizarre to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the case I can't of- remember if it's set. I think it's set on based on a true story. I think, yeah. In fact, yeah. It definitely is because at the end it's, it shows you the guy with Bruce Springsteen. It makes um, more sense. Yeah, it's autobiographical. Mm. Yeah, that's what I thought. Anyway, yeah, th- th- this one, as far as I'm aware, is not at all autobiographical. I'll be surprised if it is. Anyway, um, cool, cool. Um, I had something else to say about Blinded by the Light, then, but I've forgotten what it was. Oh well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll come to. Oh, it was um, the fact that Springsteen seems to have these um, very diehard fans. He's one of the one of the acts that I've met a few, one of the few acts actually I've met like personally in my life met people who are diehard fans. I remember at uni there was a friend, uh, an Italian guy called um, I forgot I think it was Mario, uh, who'd been to I think thirty seven gigs of his like all across the world, uh, and then I've met someone else since um, here who's similar, and you know they're not more acquaintances than friends, but still he's like that one act that I seem to have met people who are just like well. <laughs> obsessed with and, and I've never seen him live I love Bruce Springsteen I want us to go and see him live uh, it, but oh, just chasing an act round doing 37 gigs just see, uh, bewilders me a little bit um, but um, yeah. our, our friend Nick has an uncle who has seen Bob Dylan something like 150 times I mean that I can understand I really, but... I really hoped you were going to say um, <coughs> status quo there from that time that <laughs> Who was it who took you to that status quo gig? Uh, so it was me, well, it was me and Nick, and Nick's dad went to see oh, his dad. All right. Uh, yes, well, I think his dad and possibly an uncle as well. Um, we the only reason I'd agreed to go because the ticket was free. We got there and comfortably the youngest people in the crowd. Um, <laughs> the moment I knew that I shouldn't be there was when a guy in a kind of like denim jacket with loads of badges stuck everywhere and kind of wild 80s hair turned around to me and said, oh, it's nice to see some young Quo fans out. You fans are, you guys are cool. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, my brother think- actually went he went to uni with uh, one of the kids of one of the status quo, I can't remember, possibly the singer, uh, he's, he's friends with him. So that's a bit of a whenever thing I, for you. Whenever I think about them now, I always think of when uh, me and Alex went to see Godspeed You Black Emperor. And it was at um, the Sage at Gateshead, which is obviously a pretty arty venue, as it would be for Godspeed You Black Emperor. And um, as we were waiting for them to come on, uh, Alex said that if he was a band like that, <coughs> he would... He would pay someone like Status Quo and then have an announcement made right before Godspeed would you on. Uh, Godspeed, you Black Emperor, couldn't be here tonight, but we do have Status Quo. <laughs> and then just have them perform one song before Godspeed actually come on. 
That would be great. <laughs> that would be I mean, amazing trolling. I mean, that, that yeah, would... then like halfway through the song, it could meld into some weird Godspeed thing, and yeah. then they could swap seamlessly. <laughs> God's... Well, but at which point, some people would have left in fury, missed the entire gig. Godspeed, yeah. Godspeed, you Black Emperor, sampling status quo. <laughs> <laughs> the world ain't ready for that. <laughs> No, me and me and Alex did have the uh, pleasure of seeing Springsteen in 2012. Yeah, um, it was a long was set it? as usual. <laughs> I was going to say, how long was it? <laughs> Three hours, I think. Um, yeah, standard. But yeah, um, and my personal record for seeing an act is five. That's my highest number of times I've seen anyone. Mastodon. Oh, Mastodon. Okay, cool. Um, I don't think I've seen anyone more than I think three times might be mine. That's probably the tallest man on earth. Right. Yeah. It's always been local, though. I've not uh, well, I've followed seen... him around the followed him around the globe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I've seen Mastodon three times at Newcastle, and I've seen them twice before that at festivals. Um, so, so a little bit of travel. Actually, it might be Prodigy because there was there was like a year, a couple of years where I used to go to festivals. Prodigy were playing every single one. So pretty much every single festival I've been to, I've seen Prodigy at. Uh, so <laughs> right. I might have seen them about five or six times, but doing the exact same stuff. Yeah. But they were good every time. They're always good value for money. Uh, but anyway, let's move on. Let's go to Michael. I think I know what you're going to talk about, and I think we've all got something to chip in about it, so this should be a good little segment. Yeah, I'm going to talk about the new 1975 album, Notes on a Conditional Form. Um, the only thing there is for me to talk about right now. Uh, one of the most anticipated albums in recent years, for sure. Or one of the most anticipated of my uh, time listening to music. Um, the album is of course a mammoth 22 tracks 80 minutes um, and that's that's the sort of thing that would certainly hams, hamstring a lot of bands if they attempted to do that uh, and between that and um, some polarising reviews which I think are also par for the course with an album this big and an act that is often as polarising as the 1975 are uh, so, you know, some of that did give me some jitters going in but I had a lot of faith and Unsurprisingly, I need not have worried because I'm a huge fan of this from having listened to it four times already since it came out a couple of days ago. Um, I'm going to just run through the entire thing, if that's okay. So it kicks off with, um, as usual, as with all the 1975 albums, it opens with a, a self-titled track. But whereas the track on the previous three albums was, well, it was variations of the same song, uh, this one opens with a curveball. It's... Um, you know, a, be- a beautiful instrumental um, backing up Greta Thunberg, who makes a five-minute speech about climate change and climate activism. Uh, I was quite startled, actually, when I saw the 1975 Live earlier this year that there was some low-level hostility and cynicism towards this when it was, uh, when it was played live. Uh, people openly expressing their disapproval of the uh, the message, which surprised me at the 1975's own gig. Um, I mean, to me, it's entirely logical. Every every word of this track is, you know, completely true. Um, I think it's a surprising but quite amazing way to open up an album. And of course, for those people who think that uh, Matty Healy is just a smug liberal, yeah, it's not going to change their opinion of that. But um, for me, it's the perfect way to open the album. And then it, of course... Well, I mean, some of the effect of this is has been lost by the fact that the track People has already been out for a year. But it's another 
you know, a, a second shock to open up the album. By far the heaviest track that the 1975 have recorded. Um, with, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of talking reviews and things like that about the diversity of this album, and it is diverse, and I'll get into that a little bit as we go. But um, I think there's been a lot of mentions of industrial influence and people have even gone as far as to say narco-punk but actually all of that is just this track there isn't another track in this vein like I expected there might be throughout the album um, so this is this is the heavy track you know this is the punk track and it's exceptionally good with it it was one of my favourite tracks of last year for sure um, and I've always wondered if the Barack Obama lyric in it is inspired by uh, by the, f- the famous scene in Fleabag or not but I haven't seen Matty Healy comment on that yet mm-hmm. <laughs> um then we come to uh, the end, music for cars, which is a gorgeous orchestral piece, sort of a, a thematic coda to the end of this era of the band, which is known as music for cars. Uh, something I'll touch on a bit more again later. Uh, then into another track that came out last year, "Frail State of Mind." Um, this is a, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a track that. I'm going to talk about it more in co- in companion with another track later on in the album, so I'll do that. I'll wait for that un- until we come to that one. Then there's uh, the short instrumental piece, Streaming, which um, segues perfectly into The Birthday Party, which is one of the, ba- the band's best tracks so far, I think. Um, it has that signature uh, <clears throat> twinkling going on in the background that um, in various forms is a sort of calling card of, ni- of a lot of 1975 songs uh, the lyrics are hyper observational uh, about the exchanges at uh, some, some form of house party um, some of them are very humorous uh, there's a surprising amount of references to pissing on this album it has to be said uh, including this track um, <laughs> but this is a track about I mean, it's a very, it has an incredibly laid back vibe for a track that's about so many things. Uh, and it really delves into some of that through the medium of conversations between, uh, between people. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a slow burner. It took me quite a few listens to get into this one, but it's, uh, it's a tremendous track. Then there's uh, Yeah, I Know, which is effectively a more, I would say, a poppier version of Pulk Pull Revolving Doors by Radiohead from their well, their classic and most experimental album, I would say, Amnesiac. Um, it's very much reminiscent of that track, I would say. And this is where we start. This is where we start really dotting all over the genre map a little bit. So the next track is "Then Because She Goes," which basically sounds like an early My Bloody Valentine outtake, but has auto-tuned sections throughout it. And that is exactly the sort of sacrilege that I think 1975 fans. You know, supposed genre sacrilege that 1975 fans are used to now and that we love the band for. Jesus Christ 2005, God Bless America. That's, I mean, this is a track, it's quite a haunting piece, uh, largely acoustic, but it's got those, it's got those Bonnie Vare style melting horns that kick in in the background. Um, very evocative. Lyrically, it is about, it's about how people of religion and faith can often face struggles coming to terms with their homosexuality Uh, and for that reason it's quite a beautiful track Uh, Phoebe Bridges guests on the track and plays uh, a female part which adds a lot to the song Uh, it's highly reminiscent of Sufjan Stevens Um, especially reminds me of his song The Mistress Witch from McClure which is from his 
outtake album, amazingly, uh, The Avalanche, which came out after Illinois, um, one of his classic albums. Uh, there was I don't know if it's still up there, but there was a beautiful version of him playing the track on uh, YouTube for many years that I just playing it live that I just thought I'd mention because it's it's well worth going to check out. But I mean, if if this is in terms of the acoustic style of this track and the vocals, it's highly reminiscent of some of his best songs. Um, so just just another one of the list of references across this album. Um, I should say in the. Uh, in the notes that I was reading just before the album's release where Healy commented on all of the songs I don't think I'll ever see uh, another album where someone names as an influence the uh, the Swedish post-metal band Cult of Luna and the Backstreet Boys so <laughs> <laughs> that says it all really in terms of the uh, the sprawl of this album musically Is that uh, Does your dad like both of those bands, Michael? Oh yeah Massive <laughs> Cult of Luna fan of course um, um, big Phil B- Big we Phil, yeah I don't know how many shout outs he's had on this podcast actually Yeah um, The uh, the next track after that is Roadkill Which is a jaunty sort of number that alt-country number That sounds a bit like Wilco, I would say um, And it's got a lot of um, humorous lyrics again referencing a lot of real-life events, such as the criticism that Healy took for not uh, offering a comment on the 2019 general election. I quite liked that lyric, especially. Uh, A lot of these tracks have been been dipping in and out of my head over the last few days since I first heard them. This is certainly one of them. The next track is another previous single, Me and You Together song, which is, I mean, characterised by... It's how this song was not... Is not from 1985 to 1995. Is anyone's guess? Um, the guitar, the guitars are real sort of jangle pop sirens that chime away. Um, the vocals are very dreamy, and it's a track that sounds completely ripped from that era. Uh, it's it's a really gorgeous listen. Uh, the next track, I think, there's something you should know is the one I wanted to talk about in relation to Frail State of Mind. They're basically two sides of the same coin. They're basically twins. Uh, they both irresistibly weave um, Burial, the finest electronic musician of his generation, for sure, as far as I'm concerned, uh, into the 1975 sound. And the beauty of these tracks is that as they unfurl, they have multiple parts, and the details of the track are really tucked away in its folds, uh, and they blossom out as you listen to the song. They both evolve uh, quite amazingly in that sense. And they're both perfect examples of um, the way that the band has, I don't know, across this album, they've incorporated... I saw someone on Twitter say, did the 1975 invent emo garage or garage emo with this album? And that's that's the way that they've really effortlessly sucked in electronic influence into their sound, more so on this album than on any of the previous ones. The next track is... Nothing revealed, everything denied, and I've got. Uh, I've been reading Reality Hunger by the American writer David Shields. I've got it here, and well, the the big lyric on this on this song, which I think is one of the biggest across the album, uh, it might not be one of the most observational or funniest, but I think it's the chorus lyric on this is one that really sticks with you when you listen to the album. And it's uh, life feels like a lie. I need something to be true. Is there anybody out there? I think especially in these dislocated times 
just as it did before what we're experiencing now you know i think that's one of the the lyrics that really sums up uh, the way a lot of people feel and think and i mentioned reality hunger because well this is an, a, a fascinating book which examines the boundaries between fiction and reality in the creative arts but more generally as well uh, well it not only it not only interrogates that sort of area but it, it advocates for new forms of expression which um, which blur the lines between the two it's basically packed with small sections some of which are original but a lot of which have been ripped from other sources in the spirit of that exact sort of manifesto that it is uh, and one of the one of the quotes I read while re- reading it the other day was one that stuck with me in relation to that song as I've just mentioned which is our culture is obsessed with real events because we experience hardly any and I think that's exactly the sort of sentiment that Healy was gunning for there with uh, with that lyric uh, this is also the track known as the track where he raps as well albeit in pitch shift form and uh, dare I say it's actually alright surprisingly enough so and that actually features some more perlers in the lyrics of that rap section uh, Tonight I Wish I Was Your Boy is a track which really um, is the centre of all of the album's post Kanye gravity it uses a soul sample and and sound and sounds a lot like you know the sort of stuff that not just Kanye but also as I mentioned all those post Kanye writers primarily Drake have uh, have made into the pop music of the last 10 years uh, then we come to short electronic piece shiny collarbone this is where I think the the clear narrative and story of what this album about is about for me um, starts to become apparent uh, as I mentioned there's been a lot of praise for the album as being highly diverse and I think while that is true I think it is electronic music that runs through the spine of this album and gives it its essence and for me the story of the album is all about and Healy's talked about a lot about him and his friends and especially um, George Daniel the drummer and now chiefly producer of the band as well uh, driving around when they were younger at night uh, listening to garage and electronic music and I think the album it evokes that and it's really all about the graduation of the band from that to one of the biggest bands today in the world and I think that also ties in with the title music for cars of course for this era of the band and that comes through on these these short electronic pieces and also the tracks that um, more formally incorporate electronic influence and this track I think also well obviously the, as I said the band do- moves around and incorporates a lot of genres on this but I think there's a there's a, a chasm between people who appreciate the band and critics who've come to the band and to the album and perhaps don't exactly understand or aren't as invested in what the 1975 do and I think they think that some of these genre experiments are mistakes but to me there isn't a track on this album that doesn't sound like a 1975 track you know they they channel these genres and then they project their version of what that genre is and there's not there isn't a single moment on this album that punctures that aura or mystique for me none of it feels like a step too far they all feel like 1975 songs and i think that's utterly critical to it and the reason i mention it so much at this juncture is because this track features the well it technically features the jamaican dancehall act cutty ranks 
which seemed like a jarring inclusion on paper when I first read about it, and some critics have called it inexplicable or things along that line, those lines. But it's a bit disingenuous because actually uh, the intention for the band was to sample Cutty Ranks and he instead said, oh, forget about that, I'll come down and recut the vocals originally, which is what happened. So it's not really a feature and it's far more seamless than it might have seemed at first. So that's my fault for doubting it, even on paper. I think that's an example of how some of these things work far better than they sound like they might and really how the band have full control of ma and mastery of a lot of these influences and styles that they're juggling. And, I mean, we're 15 tracks into the album there, and we're still just coming now to the song of 2020, or what it always, that it always will be the song of the year that we all had taken from us. If you're too shy, let me know. The 80s saxophone banger that it is, uh, but also featuring a beautiful one-minute intro that... Uh, the sort of luscious guitar soundscape that always puts him in mind of the 60s, I think specifically because there were so many of them strewn across uh, the Jimi Hendrix Experience's classic Electric Ladyland. That's what it puts me in mind of. Um, an utterly vital part of the track. Uh, then there's Playing On My Mind, which is another acoustic number. Um, and a lot of memorable lyrics again. Uh, and I'd definitely listen to a 1975 acoustic album I think they'd be able to pull it off and then we come to Having No Head which was the track I had to go straight back to after the first listen to the album uh, I think in relation to some of the instrumental and electronic comments I made a moment ago this is the this is the most powerful moment it's basically an entire John Hopkins album condensed into one six minute track which really should sell it on its own merits really that comment um I think when you when you think about the themes I was mentioning of the band moving from you know kids with a with a love of certain electronic genre music to what they are now I think that's where it really has a lot of emotional resonance this track coming down to the final stretch of the album we've got what should I say which is another shamelessly electronic number uh, with a lot of vocal manipulation but a banger for it uh, at this point, George Daniels basically just slaying anything in his path in terms of the production. Got to say, the whole album sounds excellent, regardless of whether it's electronic or guitar-based. Um, so there's there's an orchestral electronic piece, um, the uh, humorously titled "Bagsy Not in Net," and then we come to the final two tracks, which are really the you know the punches in the fields to end the album. Um, first, there's "Don't Worry," which was Written by Matty's dad, Tim Healy, Tim Healy, sorry, 25 years ago, and features a very much a much more contemporary sort of updated sound to it than I imagine it did in in its original incarnation. And then finally, the beautiful guys, which is the tribute to to the rest of Healy's bandmates and the um, the times they've experienced over the last was it, it's about 17 years, I think, in total. So and it feels very much like an ending, and there was a lot of rumor as a result of that about where the band would go after this. But I think Healy's talked before about how he was looking for a, he was looking for an ending, but didn't know where where it would come from. And it's it's testament to the fact that you can't plan these things. The pandemic has forced it. This album was not. Obviously, it was never imagined to come out in these circumstances, but it's had to. 
and that sort of gives him the ending that he was that he was looking for and that's kind of an incredible way that things come together even things that are quite traumatic and unsettling like this is and rather than being an actual ending for the band like some people thought it might be or worried that it might be they've been holed up in isolation recording new music they're planning more more things going forward so it's kind of like circumstances of have forced something that was never planned in ways that we never could have anticipated. And this album, in, in its weirdest way, comes out at the perfect time. A lot of its lyrics and songs are classic 1975 material, but like a lot of the things I've talked about over recent weeks, they've taken on an extra resonance in the circumstances that they've been released out into the world into. And I really do believe that this album, it'll, it'll take some topping to, in terms of being my favourite of the year, but... It's one that I'll remember for a lot of years just because of the anticipation of it and also the fact that it was released in such a strange time and set of circumstances that it was. I'm sure I'll develop further thoughts on it, but for now, that's everything that I've got to say about it. Well, how many times have you listened to it now, Michael? Just four so far. Well, it's three last time I asked, so uh, you've given it another one. I've listened to this uh, fully through once, and I've listened through most of it a second time. I can't add anything to what you've said there, really, because you've covered it in such, well, thoroughness and excellence. Um, I think my my, my favourite tracks are, unsurprisingly, If You're Too Shy, which, like you said, an absolute pop-tastic 80s sax banger. Um, like I think I said this to you before, I could have imagined that have been the kind of uh, you know open air brackets song of the summer uh, style song, a bit like in kind of a Bruno Mars um, Daft Punk style. Um, we're not going to get that now. Did it get to number seven in the charts? I think you said. No, I think it only made fourteen in the end, which is still the band's highest uh, highest entry. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody I've heard. Uh, have an opinion on it, you know, agrees it's a banger. But anyway, um, my other favourite, unsurprisingly, you did mention it, the birthday party stood out to me. Um, I thought that was extremely evocative. Um, I was, I thought, I thought lyrically that was probably the strongest on the album. I don't know how you felt about that, but... Yeah, uh, it's, it's up there because the lyrics are just, well, they're so engaging and amusing, and also by the end quite moving as well. So, yeah, for sure. And they're just written in that conversational style that's really gripping to listen to mm-hmm. so yeah and they and like they're covering a lot like i said they're covering a lot of themes on a track that feels really airy actually and it's an interesting yeah. contrast I, I quite like shiny collarbone actually i don't know how how, how you felt about that one how strongly you felt but um that that one yeah. has been one that's had a few re-listens from me yeah even though it's only a short instrumental like i said with the, yeah. the cutty rank sample it's um it's very listenable. Well, some people were saying that George Daniel, for his electronic work on this album, should be uh, should be like playing and touring as an electronic act in his own right, and it's actually believable on the strength of the material. That, um, that, that he's the drummer, isn't he, and producer? Yeah. yeah. So I I hadn't realised that he did all the production for them. Um, I could imagine if the band ever goes tits up, he could be quite a superstar producer. Uh, yeah, I don't see why not. He's doing excellent work at the moment, for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, we love the band, and they're all, they're all integral parts of it. But um, yeah, for sure, there's no doubt that Healy and Daniel power the whole venture. Yeah, mm. Clive, what were your thoughts? 
Garbage. Hate it. <laughs> Thought it. Every track grates against the other. Would you? No, sorry, uh, that, was, um, that would was what the Independent said. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say, would you give it one <laughs> one star like the Independent? I'd give it I one. Mean, <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm biased, but it's just it just seems like pathetic journalism. I mean, to give an album like this one star. And also, I mean... The um, well, the review was bizarre. Like I thought, I was a quarter. I thought I'm, I'm probably about a quarter of the way through this, and then it just ended. It just dropped off a cliff. Having obviously personally assassinated Matty Healy, which happens all the time. And but it, the the way what what I found so weird about it was it it cited Fugazi as an influence on the track People, uh, but it said specifically their album End Hits, and I was thinking. I don't understand. I don't know what that's based on, and I don't understand why "End Hits" of all the Fugazi albums is the specific influence on that track. I don't know. It was a weird review. I didn't read. I just read the headline because that's what I do, um, <laughs> and then and then proceeded to make that my own opinion. That that no, that that, uh, that sounds like I want loads of hits. I want to be a Twitter Twitter conversation piece. That's the that's it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, if you give I'm something one star, you're doing it for the hits. I don't know who she is, but I'm assuming she must review music for the Independent a lot. So I don't understand that argument. Like, if that's the case, I don't understand that either. But you know. Yeah. But um, actually, yeah, I've only listened to it once, similar to you, Al, uh, because I've been focused on my 1965 article, trying to get that out the door. So I've been listening to a lot more of that stuff. But um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed my first listen through. I've got my thoughts are way less in depth than uh, Michael. I think it's a very interesting point you said about. Um, critics a bit like being invested in an act um, they're going to look at something sorry critics who aren't invested in an act necessarily who are just going to come into the review and maybe listen to loads of stuff yeah. and it's not particularly one of their, the bands that they paid most attention to or whatever or maybe it's the first of their the, the band's um, albums that they review because there's no you know nothing that says they have to have heard the other ones they're obviously going to look at it different to someone who listens to the regulate and has that kind of connection and actually knows a bit more about what the songs are about which obviously you the the depth that you'd listen at isn't a depth that i'm going to get to because i don't know enough about each of the individual songs like you do and that's one of the main things that can impact how much you like an album definitely um i found myself i mean i, I love dylan's albums anyway but when i read the his autobiography and read like the story behind each one bing bong boom Post edit Clive here on the shitty laptop mic. Um, I don't mean autobiography, I mean biography, specifically Clinton Highlands. Excellent behind the shades. Bing bong boom. Um, it made the tracks uh, sing even more, so to speak. Um, and, that's, and that's kind of another thing that is more personal and I suppose can't really. I mean, as a critic, you could do your research of all the songs, but <laughs> if you did that for every album you reviewed and, and went into every song, you're probably not going to have time to do a lot else. Yeah. Um, but it's a similar thing to like a personal experience with me noonday dream last time someone no one else is probably going to like have the same level of connection with it just because of how i experienced it and when i experienced it um, and that doesn't take anything away from what um i felt but means that okay maybe someone else isn't going to feel the same way about it and that's fine but yeah it's it's definitely an interesting thing of trying to critique stuff and i don't know it's just in, in, at the end of the, of the day, it's your own it's your own opinion that matters. I'm not one of these people who's just like, oh, critics are novices. I don't think any of us are on this uh, on this podcast. I don't think we're I think we're generally pretty pro critic. Um, yeah, <clears throat> but this is definitely an instance where I've just been a bit baffled by some of the response. I could totally understand some of the more like three star, four star reviews way better because I was like, okay, cool, you've uh, you know made a case either side, and I could totally understand someone giving it that. That's because it's their own opinion. They've backed 
their argument up fine. That makes sense. Giving it one star makes absolutely no sense to me because to me that's just something that's horrid, awful, has no creative um <laughs> uh, no creative um benefit, isn't you know, hasn't been thought about, all that kind of stuff, which this absolutely is not. This is obviously a really impressive 80 minute thing that's been thoroughly well thought out throughout even though it is chaotic which in my opinion i don't think it's as chaotic as people make out and i very much agree with you michael that they all have a vein of this sound 1975 sound running through it, which i think the drummer what's his name again george daniel you George Daniel is key to on the production, I think. In fact, I think George Daniel is completely underrated in terms of 1975 success. Yeah. I'd put him up there with Matt Healy um, because I think it's him that makes everything... Matt Healy, I think the Pitchfork review, to be fair, mentioned this, so this isn't an original point. Um, although I had thought about it beforehand, I'm going to claim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, pretty much whatever idea Matt Healy has in his head, George Daniel's going to make it sound good. Yeah. And that's invaluable. Like, you know, there's, there's, this could easily have been Matt Healy coming up with those ideas and they would sound horrendously disjointed. Um, but they don't because George Daniel has a very specific production style, which does very much, um, it's very, it is very electronic sounding, even on the tracks that aren't that electronic. Yeah. He's got a very like over-processed sound to it, but that's not, you know, it's not a bad thing. It works really well. That's probably, um, well, that's probably what I mean when I say that they, you know, they, they channel these genres, then they project what they, you know, their version of it. And that's, yeah, that's why that's why everything on here sounds like the 1975 to me. So, yeah, I think yeah. you've nailed that. Yeah. Even when they just have, like, an acoustic guitar, the last album was a good... Um, what was the track about um, him? I think, like, me, I don't know if it's a prostitute or a one-night stand uh, or something. Be, be My Mistake. Yeah, that, a great song. And it's it's just acoustic guitar on him, and I think there's maybe some twinkly piano in the background. But it still sounds 1975 because he's, like, the, yeah. the acoustic guitar sounds lush and gorgeous and... It, it sounds brilliant, but it doesn't sound like an acoustic guitar naturally sounds, really. Yeah. It's very kind of electronified, and like if you, say, recorded Bob Dylan like that, you'd be like, what the fuck's going on? Completely, um, yeah. But it works for the, the 1975. They've got an aesthetic, in other words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is which is a uh, rare thing. And I think he... Um, I'm going to have to learn his name. Daniels <laughs> is absolutely key to that. Um, and he and this album is a massive example of it, like fitting a song like People with the rest of the album and it not seeming crazy is massive testament to him because it, even that song, he makes it sound this kind of, I don't know, it sounds like something the Prodigy could have put out in a weird way. It, it sounds quite electronic despite the fact it's very instrumental punk. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think he's key and, it just means that whenever I listen to a 1975 album, I know it's just just on a surface level, it's going to sound absolutely amazing. So that's going to bring plenty of enjoyment. But then beneath that, you've got uh, Healy's obviously really good songwriting. And I like all the interlude tracks. And it's an album I can't comment on massively as a whole yet because it's just so long and I've only listened to it once. And I'll probably have less time to listen to it as a whole than some albums. But I'm excited about that because it means that it's going to take me longer to you know, get to the get to feel like i have a grip on the album and i yeah. quite like not getting to feel like i have a grip on the album very quickly if you know what i mean for sure yeah. that's a cool it's a cool thing of like okay well, i'm probably going to listen to this for the rest of the year and it'll probably keep growing on me every time and that's quite a nice feeling or i'll discover new things so yeah i really like it i certainly think i bet by by the time we do our list by the end of the year this will be close i would i can't say that right now because <laughs> i haven't listened to it enough but i just get the feeling it's got plenty enough depth to it and loads going on and it's that kind of thing that you're going to emotionally connect to it's quite yeah as they have quite a lot of emo roots as to a lot of their stuff and for sure and i think, I think they brought all... some of that back a little bit on this mm. album compared to some others yeah 
So yeah, I think it's uh, great, and I am very glad they exist. I'd love to go see them at some point. Um, and I find, I find the, the backlash on Matty Healy, you know, I don't know enough about this kind of stuff anymore because I'm not on Twitter and all this stuff, but I get I get that some people are against whatever, <laughs> claim he's a liberal, whatever, such and such. But well, the thing is, people... Uh, that just, yeah, on, obviously Michael. people think he's pretentious or whatever, but I always find him extremely interesting to listen to. Uh, his thoughts mm. spin all over the place and reference a lot of stuff, but I like that. I find it interesting and it helps me get into other things as well sometimes. Um, and I've got a lyric here from playing on my mind that I wanted to quote, actually. Um, I think this is the sort of thing where people think he's a dick or whatever, but I thought this lyric was brilliant. Um, so the, the lyric is, I met one of your friends and it was dead nice, he was fine, but he said things that interest me exist outside of space and time. Now, I know I should have left it, but who says that? What a sigh. It all kicked off and it's been playing on my mind. Uh, and I just think if that's the sort of thing we hate rock stars for now, I'll take it over, you know, Led, you know, Led Zeppelin throwing TVs out of windows, committing sexual assaults, etc. I know it's whataboutism, but, yeah. um, you know, if that's what rock and roll is today, then that's fine with me. What, one I, thing... I, yeah, oh, go sorry, on. Michael. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, um, one thing I'll say on... Uh, Matty Healy is that he's the type of person who I've instantly got my back up against, I'll admit. Uh, he's come from, obviously, a, a position of privilege to make art, and I'm always intensely suspicious of people who've had that kind of step up to start with. Um, but I've got to say, he's come across as very conscientious and very creative in his interviews, so he, he's completely turned me around, which, you know, just goes... It, to me, that would just be a case of I've I've seen so many kind of like sons or daughters of famous other people, you know, really great and not understand their privilege. But he doesn't come across that way. Yeah, and he does make mistakes sometimes, and I think he he acknowledges that as well. Um, and also, I think I don't want to get into too deeply into the whole privilege thing, but I don't, from what I know and some of the things I've read, I don't think it's been lever- leveraged that heavily in this case. Obviously, the band were playing together since they were f- like fourteen, more or less, I think, and they built up a brilliant pedigree in the space of a decade before they even released a debut album. So I think it's a little bit different to some of the cases that do undoubtedly exist that you're def- obviously referring to. Yeah, I, I just wanted to sum up why the nineteen seventy five is so important. I tweeted this the other week, and I'm just going to repurpose it here. Uh, it definitely applies to it applies to all of their work, but especially it especially applied to a brief inquiry into online relationships. And I think it continues with this album. And I think I think that's that they've they've perfectly expressed through sound and lyrics the way digital culture influences real life and vice versa, and the unspeakable synthesis between those two things and. No band out there today has mastered that condition better than they have, and I think that's what's made them so vital and so important. Well, I, th- I, I think I think we're largely on the same page with with this one. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I said I said this to um, sometimes podcast contributor James Cable the other day. This is one of those albums that has had me genuinely excited. Uh, it's not often I have. You know, I'm a music fan, more casual than the two of you, but it's not often I'm, you know, giddy at the prospect of an album. Largely, thanks to Michael's enthusiasm, it must be said, but um, this didn't disappoint. Anyway. Good. Pleased to hear that. I've just had a Keith leave, Keith's queef come through. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's updated it, so when we play it, I will do it after my review. Um, 
it's going to be the first time I've heard it as well. So. Oh, he's, he's remixed so. his queef. He's done a he's done a redo, yeah. So I don't know whether he's changed it completely from what it was before. Um, I guess I'll find out when I listen to it. <laughs> Maybe he's added some more controversy in. Who knows? Keith's requeef. How do you requeef? <laughs> Would you suck it back up and then? Do- Basically, what he's done know. by the sounds of it. Yeah, regurgitated it to answer that. Yeah. Right, well, um, yeah, so I'm excited. I think we'll probably end up having more conversations about this down the road um, as I listen to it more, etc., which I'm excited about. So certainly sounds like it will be a big part of my year, which is always exciting. Um, Right, luckily, because we're already closing up to the hour, my my review is probably going to be quite short, and I'm going to do something. Actually, you reviewed a book last time, to be fair, Al, although it was one of those books with pictures in which don't really count. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Kids books. Those comic, basically a comic with a posher name. Um, <laughs> no, I'm joking, of course. Mine's a proper book with loads of words. Actually, it's not that many words, to be fair. So the book I'm going to review is, I've, uh, I think I've mentioned before, I've been doing quite a lot of reading in lockdown. Um, and this is my favourite book I've read so far this year. And I've read such classics as In Cold Blood. So make of that what you will. Um so this book I'm going to talk about is called Convenience Store Woman, uh, which is a Japanese novel that came out in 2016 by Sayaka Murata, uh, probably pronouncing the name wrong there, and was translated, I believe, in 2018 by Ginny Tapley Takamori. Um, I actually heard about this when it came out in Japanese and heard some rave about it from people who can read Japanese. Um, so I'd kind of put it on my, I think, whatever it is, my good Goodreads to read list, uh, just hanging about hoping for a translation and checked a couple of months ago and saw that there was one. So I thought, OK, cool, I'm going to read it. Excited. It's a, a I'll start, it's, it's an 88 page book. So it's kind of, it's very short. It's, got, it's like a short, a novella, I think you might call it. Maybe even a short story. Who knows? Um, I don't know where that line is. The plot outline essentially is that uh, the convenience store woman is our main character. Um, I haven't actually researched any of the names here. I probably should have. It's it's written from the perspective of the, the convenience store woman who's worked in 80... She's worked for 18 years in... Uh, she's called Kaiko. Just looked it up. She's worked in a convenience store for 18 years. Um, she, although never mentioned in the book, she um, clearly has what, what seems like Asperger's. Um, kind of undiagnosed Asperger's by the way she's it's written from her perspective she's unable to seems uh, unable to read sort of um, facial expressions and is very her behavior is very much based on copying other people rather than instinctual if that makes sense um and as someone who has worked with uh, various people with Asperger's that's quite a common a common um aspect to that uh, condition so it's written from that. Similar to, uh, I think it's Matt Haddon's book. I could be getting the name wrong there. Um, about the, the curious incident of the dog in the night time. I think it was written from a, this perspective of someone with Asperger's. Um, and essentially it's just about her day-to-day life in this convenience store and the fact that um, she's now 36. She's still working in a convenience store. She doesn't have a, uh, a boyfriend, isn't married and doesn't have kids. And how um, she's judged about that and she finds the whole thing a bit confusing about how... Um, she's not fitting into what other people's view of what she should be doing is, even though she's perfectly happy. Um, and it's a, it's just this fabulous book about a, a fabulous kind of critique of society and the the things that we put on other people to think that almost we know better than other people how they should be happy. And if they're not fitting in, if they're not fitting into the the sort of grand scheme 
uh, ideal that we have in our heads, we're kind of offended by that. Um, and I think that's something that fits in with loads of things. And I think it's a, a, a prime reason, for example, that people hate vegans so much they find it offensive that someone would eat in a different way than they do. Um, but it's it's just it's done in such a gentle and uncombative way because of the way that um, it's written from the perspective of Kaiko. Um, and by the way, the the author, um, she actually she's worked in a convenience store, but she works part time in a convenience store and has done for the last eighteen years uh, on the side of writing uh, novels, which is her other source of income, I guess. Just it's written in this just lovely kind of almost very pragmatic way because of her uh, condition she's almost very a bit more pragmatic about things and doesn't understand things that actually when you analyze them don't make any sense and it's just i just found for the whole 88 pages i was just really really i don't want to spoil it at all but i was just really hooked into not really what fight what to find out but it was one of those that was just a joy to read i just really enjoyed every page i was like i want to read some more read some more because i'm really enjoying every page not necessarily because i want to find out what's happening um it's just it's some of the reviews on the back describe it as comical um and kind of absurd and i can sort of see what they're saying i didn't find that all i found the whole thing of quite sad gently sad i guess so i didn't really find any of the moments i can see some of the moments maybe a bit more a bit overblown and i suppose maybe supposed to be funny but i'm not so sure that, that was intentional there and certainly i found it a bit sadder more sad than comical um and i just found it a really like i say a great critique of society in a very gentle way not in a kind of um overblown uh, angry way at all um, there's there's absolutely zero anger in, in, in Kaiko writing this book and that's refreshing it's I think quite timely in a way that um, this was discussed actually on an excellent podcast which I'll just try and find the name um, Scroobius Pips uh, Distraction Peaches is excellent anyway but there was a particularly excellent episode the other day with um, I think it's Rod I've forgotten his bloody name Rutger Bregman um, who, who you probably know is the guy who did that um, I think it was at Davos did the old uh, 15,000 people flying in jets uh, to listen to David Attenborough talk about the environment speech and oh, how yeah. we should be focusing on him. tax um, yeah it's him and he's, ri- he's got written a couple of books one of which I've just started Utopia for Realists is his first one but he was talking about his next book uh, Humankind I think and he was it was a, a fabulous conversation I really liked it and I've just started the, the other conversation because it's the second time Scroobius Pips talked to him Um and I didn't catch the first one. And one of the things he mentioned is uh, one of the good things coming out of this at the moment is how we're finally kind of realising what the important jobs are. Um, like society at the moment, there's this idea of key workers and, you know, things like bin men and working in a convenience store and stuff that historically doesn't get a lot of respect and is looked down upon for whatever stupid reason is actually people are realizing that those are the those are the jobs that actually matter and just because they're paid less um does not mean that they're less important and i think uh, we have a history as a society of paying jobs that matter less than jobs that don't and i'd put my own job in this bracket in terms of when i was a teacher i was getting paid less than i am now but um and i still work for the government but i was putting up with way more stress and doing something which essentially was a lot more useful i think generally um and getting paid a lot less for it and it doesn't really make any sense that somebody in a position of as massive responsibility as a teacher uh should should do that really um and i think this book challenges some of those things as well not not as directly as as that conversation that i've talked about but it's it's interesting in that um 
to read it at the moment in particular, I think, because of that. And yeah, I just think it's a great book. It's only 80 pages long, so you can get through. Like, I've recommended it to my mum um, straight away, and she read. I ordered it for her, and <laughs> she read it within a day and loved it, uh, which is good. So been able to share something there, which is great. And yeah, I think most. I think I just think it's a really special book, and it is so short that I think it's really accessible for anyone. It's really simply written. There's nothing uh, challenging about in the way it's written. And yeah, I think everyone should give it a go because I don't think many people have heard of it. I doubt. Well, I I, only, I heard of it the other day when you you put it you reviewed it as a five stars on your Goodreads, Clive. I read oh, okay. of it, and it, yeah. So I'd already it's on my list now as well. Um, I will get to it. Even. It sounds fascinating, and I don't know why, but the fact that it's only eighty eight pages makes it extremely appealing. Uh, um, I've read a couple of short books at the minute. Yeah, there is something appealing about um, getting in and and it, this absolutely it's the perfect length for it. Like it doesn't need to be any longer, and it certainly doesn't need to be any shorter. It's very. Uh, Meaty. There's not a lot of fat. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Sounds excellent. I, I know someone who's read it, so I think this counts as it popping up on my radar now. Oh, thank the you. more people keep recommending it. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, that's good to know that it's. Uh, I think it's done pretty well, so it's probably not unheard of. But um, yeah, I wouldn't have heard of it unless I'd read this completely obscure article mentioning it in 2016. Um, yeah, well, when someone <laughs> at else point, it was just a Japanese book. When someone else mentioned it to me, obviously I'd never heard of it. But as soon as you started talking about it, I recognised it. So it's even though I haven't read it, I think it's always nice when that happens and something keeps popping up. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So it's a book I would thoroughly recommend. Um, did we have anything else to talk about? Did anyone else have anything else? <laughs> Not really. Before the we th- go into uh, the big, the big reveal. Um, <laughs> not really. The only thing else I was going to say is I'm very excited for the start of uh, a new TV series called The First Team, which starts, I believe, next week uh, from the writers of The Inbetweeners um, about a football team. I think it could go one of two ways, but the premise is is intriguing. It's got isn't Will that, Arnett in as well. I was just going to say, isn't Will Arnett the club's <coughs> mad, mad American owner, which I think has potential? <laughs> Definitely does. What's that called, Tariel? Uh, the first team. Okay, cool. You cut out for me at the end. I'll keep an eye on it. We've um, I've finished the last dance now, which I think we all have as well. Yeah. So, oh yeah, I was last chat out to that being excellent. Yeah, I was. I was surprised that you guys. Um, Maybe maybe because maybe I knew, so maybe it felt more obvious to me, but it seemed obvious to me that they won the championship. But that's why I was well, surprised when you guys said you were watching it without spoilers. Well, if you'd said, if you'd asked me to predict, that's what I would have said. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I got the impression that Jordan wouldn't have commissioned anything which showed him anything but a win. <laughs> well, that's a fair point, yeah. <laughs> Hence why it made no mention whatsoever of his Washington Wizards uh, comeback. Yeah, as a Wizards fan, that was disappointing for me. Yep. <laughs> How was he at the uh, Wizards? Let's, uh, uh, let's set the record I, straight. I think um, he played quite well, as far as I'm aware. Uh, the Wizards didn't make the playoffs either year, either of the two years, because they weren't very good, a good, very good team. Um, okay. I th- and I don't know a lot about the period, to be honest, but I think he did have some clashes with people who obviously weren't able to play on his level. It was a different culture to the Bulls, obviously, and by this point, Jordan was past his best. But f- How long after the last dance did he come back to the Wizards? He had two years out, I think, before he came back. Okay. Was it, th- it seemed no, quite no, more common was- than expected in a basketball. I think Magic uh, Johnson did something similar, like retired for four years. I think it was three, actually. I've just recalculated. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, he came into... Well, he came, I think he joined the Wizards at the same time as they drafted Kwame Brown with the number one pick in the NBA draft, and he, he's one of the most notorious flop number one picks in the NBA draft. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's standard Wizards, you know, a long history of mediocrity since the last championship in 1978. Um, wow. But still, nice to be graced by the stardust of Jordan, of course. <laughs> Um, yeah, I actually ended up spoiling the ending for myself because I, as I say, ordered NBA 2K20 and decided I was going to play as the Utah Jazz just because I'm listening to a lot of jazz and also I quite <laughs> like their colour scheme. Um, so I read up on Wikipedia the a jazz history and then saw that they'd got into two finals and not won either one. And I was like, well, I've seen one of them. So this is obviously the other one. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, which was a bit of well, a shame. I, I am um, very much against the Utah Jazz having watched all of Treme in which there is a great scene uh, where Steve Zahn's character bemoans the fact that uh, the Jazz moved from New Orleans to Utah, a place which he esteems has never, ever played a note of jazz in its existence. (laughs) I mean, it's the worst of both worlds, isn't it? They end up with the Utah Jazz, which is meaningless, and they end up with the New Orleans Pelicans. (laughs) The New Orleans Jazz would be such a cool name. Well, that, that's what it used to be called, yeah. Let's just switch it back, fuck's sake. Yeah, look, Utah, you have the Pelican name, we'll have the jazz name, everything else yeah. can stay the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It just makes sense. I oh. quite like the name Utah, though. Utah's a cool place name. I don't know what the place is like, but it's a good name. But anyway, let's move on to, um, like I said, we've got Keith's Queef, as he wants it known. Mm-hmm. Keithley's Corner apparently isn't controversial enough. Um <laughs> He's, it, the little comment here, it's political. I thought it'd be more relevant for today's episodes rather than next week's. So let's see what happens. It's been a sad weekend for British politics. However, Alistair Campbell referring to Matt Hancock as Matt Wancock on Twitter is the best thing to happen politically in the last decade. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. Okay. Right. <laughs> no, he, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. I heard another good one where um, somebody thought that Matt Hancock refer- is Reek and um, yeah. <laughs> Dominic Cumming- Cummings is, Ra- is Ramsey. <laughs> There's something amusing about the idea of Dominic was- Cummings uh, cutting off Matt Hancock's dick. <laughs> it was the way they'd done it, though, because they hadn't... Obviously, they hadn't explained that. They just quoted Matt Hancock's grovelling... Tweet right to apologise for coming and just putting quotations. My name is Reek. <laughs> <laughs> weak, weak. It rhymes with weak. <laughs> right. I've um, been tr- I've been desperately trying to remember that superb Doug Stanhope quote about jazz. Uh, I can't, but I will get it for the next podcast. <laughs> okay, it's it's worth I it. Which, I don't think I know which one you're referring to. Um, <laughs> okay. Interessant. Um, anything else, Al? Before we, um, in fact, you've, you've probably got something to say, haven't you? Um, well, or a question to ask. There is a strange sound coming from my wrist and my wall. Tick tock. Oh my god! Looks like it's, it's- plug time. <laughs> I'm not going to do plug time. Um, Stick at Stick Around Cast on the Twitter slash Stick Around Podcast on Facebook for a regurgitated version of that. If you're not on Twitter, um, if you're on neither one, fuck you. I'll <laughs> include myself in that. 
Um, you can go on. You can you can get us on Instagram, but you won't get anything useful. At Stick Around po- Podcast, I think on that. Uh, I don't think there's been a picture on there for a while, so we should put one up. And what else have we got? We've got um, stickaroundpodcast.gmail.com is how you can email us. Stickaroundpodcast.com for all the episodes, uh, the backlog of episodes, which you can also get on whatever your favourite podcast app is. But um, if you want to get them direct from the website, go for it. You can also find our articles. Um, Notably, I am doing a top five of every, top five albums of every year from 1960 to the present day. Um, starting to regret this challenge. No, I'm not really, but it is taking up a lot of time and going to take me about three years, uh, but it's good fun. I'm currently up to 1964. I've pretty much finished 1965, so I suspect that'll be out by the time you hear this, um, which is good stuff. Uh, plenty of jazz still, but we are slowly running out of jazz. So if you if you, if you like jazz, get in there quick because it's going gonna, it's gonna to dissipate. Um, anything else that I've missed? I believe you did that perfectly. Well, I don't think that's... Let's not get carried away. <laughs> anyway, um... I've, I've, I've remembered the stand-up quote. Oh, yes. Oh, go for it, that's go what for I was it. waiting for. Oh, it's, uh, so, it's obviously the context of it is that he's implying that uh, certain people's criticisms of marijuana may have um, may have racial motivations. Uh, I, I won't be able to do the accent as much um, as much justice as he does in the impressions. But he's, yeah, he's, his impression of some people who are opposed to marijuana when he says um, he says, "I've never tried marijuana. I believe it leads to jazz music and raping white women." <laughs> as if, as if he's made an equivalency between listening to jazz and rape. Well, he has, but only in the eyes of, you know... Oh, yeah, I'm not saying that's <laughs> Doug Stanhope's opinion, but... Uh... <laughs> well, I think that's clear, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the biggest... Well, it wasn't really a regret, but a, a regret of my life that I haven't seen Doug Stanhope live and I had the chance. Yeah. But it, it was either that or a all-expenses-paid all trip uh, to Croatia, uh, specifically Dubrovnik, so... Yeah. Well, when I yeah, when I did attend that gig, he well, he he did original material that I'd never heard, which is fantastic, and some of it was m- some of the most controversial stuff I've ever heard in my life. So whether he ever formally releases that, I'll wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> but you expect no less from Doug Stanhope. Let's face it. Mm-hmm. Should have well, recorded it for us uh, on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, it's been two years now, and I can't remember the details very well. So I hope that yeah. I hope that emerges eventually. Yeah, mm-hmm. that'd be lovely. Um, cool. Well, we're up to one minute fifteen, so I guess it's time to say bye, um, Al. You've been Alex Wayne, and you've played a great job. I have been today. Yeah, I have been. Okay, good. There was something a bit more sharp about you this time. Yeah. It didn't seem like you were reading sort of a, a crib sheet. Yeah. Like last week. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and uh, Michael has been a splendid version of Michael Johnson. Thank you very much. I've been thoroughly average. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks. That's what I was, that's what I was digging for. <laughs> uh, or fishing for, anyway. Uh, see you next week for more cutting opinions. And remember <laughs> to stick around. Stick around. Stick around.
Thank you all for listening Rest assured that you have found The best podcast in the universe It's Stick Around Clive, Clive, do you know uh, Cold War Steve, the artist? Um, I feel like I've heard the name Yeah, he, he sort of creates collages of uh, people They always involve Silver oh, yeah, Black yeah. and... What the guy who plays Phil Mitchell, I've forgotten his name, Steve McFadden. Um, well, I've just I've just been on Twitter and noticed he's unleashed a masterpiece. Have you seen this yet, Wayne? This morning. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> what it's, is it? it's Dominic Cummings doing carpool carpool karaoke at, at Weatherby Services. I think the implication is obviously that he's on his way to Durham. Um, and also in the car with him, along with James Corden, is Harold Shipman. <laughs> 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 Jesus. I love that he's obviously this, done that since yesterday. This sounds like a masterpiece. <laughs> I'm all over it. Yeah. <laughs> wow.